everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in that great state we know of, called New Jersey. And I'm very happy to be joined this evening by co-host, Station Manager Ken Friedman. Hi, Ken. Hi, Mark. Always great to be here on Tectonic. Thanks for joining. Uh, usually you are guest hosting the show solo when I'm out somewhere, but this is an unusual evening. We're, we're going to be uh, co-hosting a live interview, and so we're, we're, we're both in Studio A at the same time, which hasn't happened in a while. It's because it's a very special episode of Tectonic. <laughs> That's right. Now, <clears throat> I want to acknowledge um, from the outset here that we are broadcasting on September 11th, 2023, and so, of course, this is the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 uh, attacks in New York, D.C., and Pennsylvania, and partly inspired um, by this anniversary, I thought it would be um, timely to talk about disaster alerts, which, uh, Ken, you can talk about later in the show about uh, your experience, not just in, in, within 9-11 uh, alerts, but uh, Hurricane Sandy and, um, and other disasters that have been in, in this area. Uh, but before we get to disaster alerts and our live guest, who we're gonna be bringing on, Jeanette Sutton, in a few, few moments, I wanna just note a, uh, another anniversary, much, much smaller, but it's worth pointing out, and that is that uh, Tectonic started with its very first episode on September 11th, 2017. And so this is the six-year anniversary of the show. And so I want to say thanks to you, Ken, for bringing me on and sticking with the show these, these years. And Oh, congratulations, Mark. Six years. Yeah, thank you. Do you count your shows? I do. I count the shows that I host. And uh, this is 286. Nice. <laughs> so it's getting there. But I remember that show six years ago. Uh, our we were in reversed chairs. You were in this one, and I was there on mic two. Ah. And I was I was terrified, uh, but somehow made it through the hour. Uh, and um, and it's nice to be back uh, six years later. And I think this is the f this since that first show. I think this is the first September 11th that has occurred on a Monday. So that's why I don't think we've ever marked September 11th on the show since then. Yeah, well, it's been a great ride, six right. years of Tectonic. Thank you. So thank you for doing the show. It's such a unique, amazing program. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a privilege to be part of this uh, radio station community, the greatest of all radio stations, as I say every week. Um, and so let's talk about the theme this evening, uh, disaster alerts. We're, as I said, it's in part... Um, Disaster alerts that don't work. <laughs> that, that don't work. Well, this is tectonic after all. <laughs> we're talking about technology that doesn't work. Um, of course, it's, it, we're talking about 9-11 somewhat, but, but really in more recent memory, uh, there were the awful fires in Maui uh, that, that tore through Lahaina. And there were disaster alerts that kind of sort of went out, but not really. And there was a there's a great New York Times article. It's on the playlist. If you go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments. You can see actually a bunch of a bunch of articles I posted that have to do with uh, disaster alerts 
and technology. But this one in particular, you should take a look at if you're interested. It's called Maui sent an evacuation alert. Why did so few people get it? It was uh, in the New York Times, September 3rd, 2023, by Mike Baker, Ser Sergio Olmos, and Eileen Sullivan. And one of the people they quoted in this New York Times story was Jeanette Sutton, who's a professor at University of Albany. And we're going to bring on Jeanette, who is an expert in disaster alerts and the uh, how... <laughs> The, the intent and the execution and the delta between those two, some of the problems that often occur with disaster alerts and some of the good things that happen as well. So should we bring on uh, Jeanette? Well, do you want to first mark 9-11 by talking a little bit about what happened here, what we observed here yeah, at let's, let's, WFMU? Let's talk about that. Because that was a, it was a disastrous uh, uh, disaster response. Uh, and the thing that happened uh, on 9-11 was half the radio and TV stations in the area were destroyed along with the Twin Towers. Uh, people couldn't get any kind of information. Yet, for some reason, the federal uh, program known as the Emergency Alert System was not activated. It was not activated in the New York, New Jersey area or Washington, D.C., where the Pentagon was attacked or in Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 crashed. Uh, the emergency alert system just was not activated at all. And this is the one that listeners may be familiar with because there's an occasional test of the EAS here at WFMU. The DJ says, here's our... Uh, and of course, of course, many people noted that uh, on the day of 9-11, on the day when you would most expect the emergency alert system to be activated, it wasn't used at all. It wasn't used at all. So it was a very embarrassing moment for the Federal Communications Commission, and uh, they had to do something almost unprecedented, perhaps unprecedented, which was issue a press release within days of 9-11 to explain why they had not activated uh, the emergency alert system. And they put out a one-page press release, and they said that they didn't want to create panic, and the emergency was self-evident. Um, which <laughs> which of was course, not true. Which was not true at all. I remember <laughs> that day. There was all sorts of misinformation. Even even on the national uh, news networks, nobody knew what was going on, yeah. what, what, what the, had the already F happened. The FCC even went so far as to say everybody was watching cable TV anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... Here's and the thing, we, like there's lots of photographs of uh, people downtown on 9-11 crowded around a car to listen to, to the, the misinformation coming out of the car radio. That's right. So there obviously was a need for disseminating the information out through the remaining radio and TV stations in the New York area, but it just wasn't utilized. They didn't have a plan for what to do at all. And, and this is emblematic of the emergency alert system, which is a really a terrible, terrible system uh, that focuses only on its own infrastructure and not on actual preparation or, or actual emergency solutions for the public. Okay, so there are two issues with EAS. One is that on 9-11 in 2001, as you said, the system was not activated at all. So after all this monthly testing of all these radio stations, when there's actually this giant emergency, it's not even lit up. And then there's a, there's a follow-on problem, which is, you've pointed out, that when it has been used in disaster scenarios, it often does not have anything very useful to say, right? right. It, so, and that, that's something that, that we heard about in the, in the Maui fires. 
right? Correct. That, that yeah. EAS was activated, but it didn't. It, it, this we should get Jeanette on to to give her perspective. But um, EAS, as we were talking before the show, didn't didn't give a lot of helpful information about what to do next. Yeah, in Maui, uh, the emergency alert system was activated. Um, all the TV and radio stations in Maui survived the fire and stayed on the air throughout the entire fire, except for one very low power translator. Uh, they activated the alarms, but they didn't give out, the alarms didn't give out any helpful information at all. And then even in the days after the fire, uh, radio and TV stations were not getting any kind of helpful information that might aid the public. And they had to go begging for it. They had to, a consortium was created of, of Maui FM radio stations, uh, not FM, AM and FM radio stations, and they started extracting information <laughs> from the Maui Emergency Management Agency and FEMA, uh, who were not prepared to give them any helpful information at all, but the radio right. stations managed to get three updates a day, starting within a couple of days of the fire. Well, maybe we can bring on Jeanette Sutton, who was quoted, again, she was quoted in this New York Times piece from September 3rd, Maui sent an evacuation alert, why did so few people get it? Uh, which this story is talking about more than just EAS, it's talking about uh, wireless emergency alerts as well, which is a different kind of disaster alert that we'll talk about. Let's uh, bring on Jeanette, and um, Jeanette, are you with us? I sure am. I've oh. been listening along, and it's been very interesting. You're sharing some things that I've not even heard about before. Okay. Well, first, welcome to Tectonic. Ken and I are so so pleased that you joined us. So thanks for taking some time. Well, thanks for inviting me. I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation. You're at University of Albany. You're a professor in the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity. Can you just just give us a, a very brief description of, of what your expertise and what your area of study is? Sure, thanks. Um, so I study alerts and warnings. I've been doing this for about 20 years. Started when I was a graduate student back in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and uh, I focus on how those messages that are disseminated over primarily short messaging channels um, how they should be designed so that they can capture people's attention and motivate them to take action. And um, a short messaging channel is something like a social media that arrive, that you can look at on your phone or um, a wireless emergency alert. And so you've written a lot um, about the proper design of the content of the messages. So what happened in in Maui when the EAS went off and as Ken was talking about, there wasn't enough information or wasn't uh, helpful information that was given to the residents. Is, is that the sort of thing that you are concerned with, the, the, uh, the content of the messages? I am. And, you know, I was, I was actually on vacation myself during when the, the Maui wildfire occurred. And so um, I, I started paying attention to it a week or so after um, the event. And so um, you actually, you know more about what was happening on the ground from your connections with the other radio stations than than I do. Um, but in terms of the wireless emergency alerts, I was paying attention to the contents that were included in the messages, but also thinking about who got the messages and who didn't get the messages. 
And so the dissemination channel um, and how that may or may not have arrived on some people's dis um, uh, mobile devices. Okay, so let's let's make a a, a um, categorical difference here between the emergency alert system, which goes out over radio, over broadcast, and the wireless emergency alerts. Do you call those WEAs or WEAs? We call them WEAs. WEAs, okay. So they're WEAs that go out over... Uh, over cell towers, and uh, anyone who carries a surveillance phone or a smartphone um, probably knows these when there's a giant, in the New York area, when there's a giant thunderstorm coming, sometimes you'll hear a burp, 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 you know, some sort of a siren coming out of the phone. That's a WIA, right? When, when we hear that's, those? Yes, that's correct. So the, the WIAs um, support amber alerts, um, imminent threat alerts, public safety alerts, and the national alerts. Um, they used to be called presidential. And uh, you can turn most of those different kinds of alerts off, but you cannot turn off the national alerts. Okay, and so in Maui, was it a national alert, alert that went out? No, that would have been a a local imminent threat alert message. Right, I guess national alert has to go nationally, right? Correct. They, they can't filter that by geography. That makes sense. Okay, so they have a local alert that goes out, and the Times article talked about how um, people with newer phones sometimes didn't get the alert, whereas people with older phones did get the WIA alert. How did that work? So this gets into some of the technological complexities that I'm not as versed on because I am a social scientist and so I study oh, yeah, the messaging fine. portion. However, I can tell you that in general, when a WIA is issued, the alerting authority will essentially draw a polygon around the area that they want to alert. And if you are within that polygon, you should get the alert. Sometimes there's over-alerting that crosses outside of that polygon, and in some cases, phones will get the message. Um, and so that would be a, an, an example of over-alerting. Um, uh, but you have to, in general, be inside of the polygon to receive the alert, whether you have a new phone or an old phone. I, I, I obviously am, am not an expert at this at all, but I don't know why the Polygon, they did just circle the whole island of Maui and just say, hey, there are these horrible wildfires. Here's, here's what's happening. If you're anywhere on the island, I don't know. Ken, what do you think? Is there, is there a, a better way they could have geofenced that thing? Well, I mean, that, I, I did want to point out that that's, the main, that's one of the uh, distinctions between WIA, wireless emergency alerts, and the old-fashioned EAS, is that EAS uh, simply uses large radio stations to notify medium-sized ones who notify small ones. So the entire region gets blanketed with a message, whereas many emergencies are much more uh, geo-specific, like a flood, for example. So that's what WIAs were meant to provide. Um, but in my mind, one of the problems is that um, broadcast media can cover a very large range, a large geographic area. You could have an FM transmitter 30 miles away from a community. So if something's happening in that community, for example, it's burning down, um, you can still get a signal to it. Whereas with a WIA, I think one of the fatal flaws of the design is that most of the signals are coming from local towers. That's right. And you have to be located very close to that local tower. 
you know, usually, you know, within half a mile of the local tower. So if there's something like a flood or a fire or an avalanche or any other number of disasters that's affecting that local area, it's also going to take down the WIA network. That's right. And if there's a power failure locally also, it doesn't even have to destroy the tower. It just has to take down the power, right, of right. the transmitting tower. Whereas an EAS 30 miles away is less likely uh, to be affected by a local power failure in the town itself. And, and mind you, I don't think EAS is a uh, good system. In, in, <laughs> right. in the end, it's just technically much more resilient than the wireless systems that have uh, come to replace it. Uh, the, the main downfall of the EA, EAS is that the federal government and FEMA and local state uh, broadcasting authorities put no effort into thinking about the messaging right. and what kind of information this system should put out. It's a system that was meant, or it wasn't meant to, but it's a system that has focused only on its own mechanisms and its own infrastructure rather than focusing on what the messaging could possibly be. They need to talk to Jeanette Sutton, I think. Yeah. Jeanette, <laughs> what, what should a message, whether it comes as a WIA or an EAS alert, what should an alert, a disaster alert, say? It should say five things. It should tell people who the message is from so that you clearly know that it's not some thing taking over your phone that you really don't want to see, um, like a spam-ish kind of a message. It should tell you what the hazard is um, so that you know why you're being alerted and also what that hazard is doing. Um, is it moving? Could it cause you to have some kind of an illness? Is it an active shooter situation? What is it actually doing? Um, then it should also include the location of the hazard uh, and the location of impact. It should include information about what people should do to protect themselves and something about the time of the event or of when the message was issued or um, when people should take action. And I think um, those five pieces of information, we frequently see that they're, the standard of practice is maybe half of that, maybe three items is included. Um, and best. that's terribly challenging for a person who receives a message when the location information is not included. And so if you go to your example of why didn't they just broadcast it all over Maui? Well, if location inf information is not included in that message, you wouldn't have any idea of if they were talking about the fire on West Maui or the one um, in the center of Maui because there are three fires burning at the same time and they were sending out WIAs to the three different locations at the same time. Um, so that location information and the time and the source and really important is the guidance. Um, so that people know what they can do to protect themselves. Okay, so you you have written this out. I'm sure mm -hmm. you've you've spoken about this. You've advised organizations. It sounds very straightforward. Everything that you said sounds exactly right. These five things should be in a disaster alert, an emergency alert. What is the holdup or what is the resistance? It doesn't sound like it's that complicated to have a checklist if um, agencies are gonna be sending out uh, a WIA to make sure that they have all five of those. Have you 
do you have any idea why we're still struggling uh, to to send out all five to get that we're still at three? I do have an idea. Um, so if you look at your typical emergency manager across the country, um, they tend to be in smaller communities, small populations covering large territories, um, geographical areas. They tend to be people who are doing multiple do multiple jobs um, with limited training and education on risk, what we call risk communication, which is what an alert and a warning is, um, frequently trying to respond to an event and coordinate resources at the same time that they're being asked to manage a system where you've said it yourself, they focused a lot on the infrastructure um, and unfortunately made it a little complicated um, all at the same time. And under conditions of heightened stress where there's a real need to get it right, it's also the time where it's really hard to think straight and do it right. right. So I give a lot of room for uh, opportunity for improvement to emergency managers who are put in these situations that are really, really challenging um, because they, frankly, those organizations have not had a lot of resources and time to put towards learning in order to improve their messaging. Um, there are certainly strategies that are being put in place to help them to improve, um, but previously asking them to figure out how to do it right without giving them really good tools has has been kind of the fallback. Jeanette, that's really interesting that uh, you say a lot of emergency managers haven't received any training and don't even have a full-time job doing that. And I've noticed also, especially in the wake of Maui, that it seems like a lot of the emergency management uh, regional and national jobs might be paid. They seem to be patronage jobs. I'm thinking of uh, Hurricane Katrina and the famous heck of a job brownie moment. Uh, Michael Brown was the hapless FEMA chief during Hurricane Katrina, and he was just a Republican donor. He had no background in anything related to emergencies. And that rang, that rhymed during the Maui fires when the, the head of the Maui Emergency Management Agency was a guy named Herman Andaya, and he was the one who famously decided not to use the sirens, these uh, elaborate monthly tested sirens that they have all through Maui. And he decided not to use those because he thought people were so stupid uh, that they would run towards the flames. They, he said uh, that they, he was afraid people would think it was a tsunami. Right, and then they would run uphill into the flames like they're that <laughs> stupid. Um, but he also, that was a patronage job. Yeah. Um, he was the chief of staff for the person who ran for, I don't know, for some local office on Maui. So Jeanette, is this, is this a problem nationwide that these jobs turn into just like nepotism and patronage uh, assignments? I don't actually think that that's the case in most places across the country. Um, uh, it, it may be that Occasionally, there will be someone who is put into a position, um, a, a highly visible position, where it is more political, where they do spend more, a lot of time in front of the camera, um, responding, so, really, and it so could like, be a career booster. But 
a lot of the emergency managers that I have met um, are former military, former police, um, public servants who are taking on that role, not because of it's been given to them. <laughs> I don't know an emergency manager who would want it handed to them if they realize the amount of work that's required, especially when there's an emergency that's breaking. Yeah, so was Michael Brown as the head of FEMA, he's an anomaly and other other FEMA heads have actually had some experience? There, yes, there other FEMA heads have had experience. And I think that what we saw was a shift in the, um, in the type of person who was put into those positions um, under different leadership. Um, when FEMA, uh, when under Clinton, when um, uh, James Lee Witt took over FEMA as the head, he was a seasoned emergency manager and he really helped to change the culture and the work ethic of FEMA. We also saw under um, Obama, Craig Fugate, who came out of Florida, was a professional emergency manager um, for years and remains um, uh, deeply involved in the emergency management community, but he brought in with him a lot of technical experience and competency. Um, we see right now Deanne Criswell, who runs FEMA, and she also came from an emergency management background. Um, so, yes, absolutely, there are going to be those individuals who who do receive a patronage appointment, but we also see that there have been examples of people who are highly competent in that position. Oh, that's good to hear. I wonder if, um, Jeanette, if you see some positive signs of uh, wireless alerts being used well now that, it, now that it has been rolled out and people have had some time to uh, learn from other case studies. I'm specifically thinking about a couple of weeks after the Lahaina fire in Maui, there was uh, Hurricane Hillary in California or threatening California. This was mentioned in the New York Times piece. And the Times piece said that uh, the, as uh, they, they were unable, the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department was unable to send a wireless evacuation alert to the community of Seven Oaks. Uh, and the county, it says the county cited a breakdown in its connection to the wireless alert system on the other hand, there's another article from the LA Times that says warnings likely saved lives. This was, Hillary was um, the, the first West Coast storm to get an official tropical storm warning. And I think that helped spur some use of, of WIAs. And the LA Times reported that it actually worked fairly well. Do you think things are getting better as more communities are turning to wireless emergency alerts? I've, I have seen and read about improvements in the use of WIA and have heard stories of individuals who have talked about the only thing that they received prior to a tornado, um, experiencing a tornado was a WIA that told them to go into their basement and take cover. Um, and so certainly there are experiences where, and examples where people have received the WIA and it has been life-saving. Um, WIA has been around for about 12 years now. 
And it has been steadily improving. Um, when it first started, it was limited to 90 characters long, which is really just not enough information to help people to take action. Um, it did not include the ability to add a, a link or a URL out to additional information. It was not in Spanish. In 2019, that changed. We have messages that can be much longer, 360 characters long. They can be sent in Spanish now. Um, they can include a URL. And the geofencing has gotten tighter. Um, and I think that we're going to see even more improvements as FEMA rolls out some software that actually at my university we've been working on to help um, message writers to write better messages. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. A little template so, checklist sort of thing? Kind of. Um, it's, it's, it's a software that we've designed that uses, um, we've created all of the content that's been vetted and verified by subject matter experts. And it's, uh, it's sort of like a drop down menu that as an emergency manager works through the message, um, it walks them through the right contents in the right order and it forces them to make decisions about leaving things out and putting things in so that they'll have a complete message at the end that uses consistent language that's plain language for um, for message receivers. That sounds like a much better designed system than I imagine what without your software, what, what emergency managers have is just a blank text field. <laughs> and You're as absolutely you, right. <laughs> and, a, and, and a little counter that says you have so many characters left, like, uh, like what people used to use on Twitter, whatever it's called now. Um, and that just, as you said, they're under pressure. You know, the fire is, is advancing or the tornado is coming or whatever it is, and they're sweating it. And looking at a blank text field, you can imagine they're going to leave some things out. And so it just, it sounds, now that you describe it, it sounds so obvious that emergency managers should be using something like the, the tool that you're working on that's going to guide them through to make sure the right information goes out in the right way. I totally agree. <laughs> I think that that's the reason that FEMA saw this as being such an important and relevant tool also. And emergency managers had been asking for something like this. They had said that it was really hard for them to know how to write things effectively. They just didn't have the time to build out templated messages ahead of time. Um, I've heard stories of of the person who's sitting at the keyboard writing a message is it's being dictated by somebody out, some incident commander out in the field who who's under tremendous pressure. And that person at the keyboard has even less experience with emergency management than the commander and if they have this tool at their fingertips they'll be able to write a message that that is we know is going to be effective because it follows all of the evidence that we've been collecting about how to write and issue good messages for the last 50 years now that makes complete sense to me um let's say that this tool rolls out and the agencies all adopt it and they're writing better messages there still comes the question that we taught that we opened with uh which is infrastructure and you had a you weren't quoted but they referred to you in the new york times piece saying something about infrastructure that um and i'll just read from the article Ms. Sutton said it was important to build more redundancies into the emergency alert system. Look at burying cables, 
to make it more resilient and to remember that the wireless system cannot be relied on alone to warn people that danger is imminent. So can you expand on that a bit? I mean, as Ken was saying earlier, if we're relying on cell towers that have relatively short range, uh, that puts people at danger if there's a power failure or they are not in range, they happen not to be in range of the tower. Do you think, are you also making recommendations to start burying cables and, and uh, create some other redundancies? Oh, I, I haven't made recommendations about infrastructure um, beyond that comment where I was <laughs> okay. agreeing with the reporters that creating right, redundancies right. Uh, is really important. Um, yeah, I was however, wondering, I was wondering if, if you're aware of what work is going on to address the fragility of uh, cell phone networks and wireless networks and even the Internet itself, because our experience here in Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, during 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy was that the cell phone networks and the wireless networks just stopped working completely um, and the mm -hmm. Internet practically uh, stopped. Um, there was just so much traffic on all of these that it was the system was brought to its knees. So yeah. uh, are you aware of whether anybody's even attempting to address that problem? I'm, I don't have an answer to that question. I mean, I've, I've heard people saying, well, what about satellite? Um, what about finding some other connectivity that way? Mesh networks using the mobile communication uh, vehicles that um, they call them cows and cells by Verizon and AT&T. And I don't know what the acronym stands hmm. for. Cows. Um, mesh net mesh wheels, networks. Maybe. Yeah, mesh networks is an interesting idea. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, it, it, you know, the question that Mark was asking about uh, other channels and not just relying on EAS or WIA, I think that that's vital. Um, there are so many other ways to get information out there, uh, broadcast news, radio, AM, FM radio, um, people who are... Um, uh, on CB radios, um, you know, listening to the the wires and, and sharing information that way through shortwave. Um, uh, if all else fails, door knocking, going down the street with your uh, bullhorn or in the using the PA system in your vehicle, uh, emergency vehicles. Well, that's Those what they are... that's what they did in the Blues Brothers. They had a bullhorn in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and roll down the streets of Chicago talking about the and, and it worked. They filled the house. It does work. It's it's vital. And um, sirens can also be used. I know you mentioned those earlier. And but, you know, what's really important about sirens is that we know that they work best when they are when people are trained to respond to them because they've learned what the tone means. And right. one of the challenging things that I think we have to face as we think about using one siren for multiple kinds of hazards is that it's going to delay action when people have to figure out what does that tone mean. Right. And so, well, if we, I, I feel that like in the case of Maui, uh, well, for one thing, the the system that was not used actually was supposed to be used for fires. 
um, they had it stated that it was that was one of its possible uses. So it wasn't just for tsunami. No, then. it wasn't. It okay. wasn't just a tsunami. It was for multiple types of disasters. Yeah. But right. In, in, but in, I, you know, one of the things we don't know is what did people train on? What was the public education activity around the use of sirens before the fires? And I would love for some social scientists to go out and talk to all of the people in Maui and across Hawaii to learn about what were what were they trained to understand. Right. Um, well, my because guess. Because that makes a huge difference, whether your YouTube video tells you that it's for multiple hazards or you've trained for multiple hazards. You're right. Yeah. In Maui, they tested these once a month. Mm -hmm. So probably what would have happened when it go, when it went off is people probably would assume it's a test. It's a monthly test, right. Um, but if they did anything, they might just stick their head outside and try to see what this is about. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, that's very worthwhile. Yeah. Um, there were people who didn't realize there was a fire in Maui until it was across the street from them. Well, one of the things that I mean, we're talking about all the different ways that messages can get out. And uh, this this is showing my bias on on this show a bit. But one of the patterns that I notice that comes up a lot on the show is that the the brand new shiny technology that's supposed to do everything often is the most fragile. It's the the least battle tested. It has uh, it has flaws that come out when it's rolled out, whereas the old, reliable, faithful technologies that have been around for a long time and have had all the bugs worked out over the decades um, often are the better choice or at least are an essential choice to, to include. Here I'm thinking about radio uh, using the, the broadcast towers 30 miles away. If they're going to be more stable and more reliable, we have to make sure that radio is at least included in the emergency alerts. Um, hopefully giving better information uh, and actually activated. Yet, uh, there has been conversation recently about whether to remove radio, especially AM radio, from the newer cars. And this has been a debate that's been going on the last um, three or four months as, uh, as manufacturers like Tesla and other uh, manufacturers making um, EVs are saying or claiming that AM radio messes with the uh, the electronics in the car, and so they want to rip the AM radio out of the car. And it has gone all the way to the U.S. Senate, and there are links on the playlist at WFMU.org talking about a bipartisan bill that's going to force automakers to keep AM radios in the cars, even the brand-new EV cars that uh, Elon Musk and others would like to rip out. Um, Ken, wh what do you think about AM, AM and FM radio being maintained in cars, new model cars? Well, obviously I want to see that happen. <laughs> kind of a softball <laughs> question. Uh, yeah, it's very, uh, you know, I consider it very, very important to uh, keep radios in people's hands and in their cars. It, we're already at a point where most homes don't have a radio um, anymore. Um, people listen to radio stations at homes, but often it's through a smart speaker um, or through a wireless device of some sort. Um, so to take AM radio out of a car is really like a death knell for AM radio. Um, and it's a real danger sign for FM radio as well. And, and it's just a terrible shame because 
for all of its faults and all of its lack of the advantages of wireless technology, AM and FM and television broadcasting is much more robust, right. much more redundant, much more disaster proof, uh, and much easier to use right. <laughs> uh, than any of these other things. You know, wire, we is we didn't even talk about the fact that sometimes you have to opt in on we is that older people, you know, tend to have trouble, uh, especially if it involves getting an app or some even minor layer of complexity. And you just can't get you can't get any easier than switching on a radio. Right. Jeanette, what do you think? Has this come up in your work at all? The, the use of emergency alerts in cars using AM FM radio? Not in my work, but I've certainly been following um, some of the conversation about it. And I I totally agree with the both of you that it's important to have that as another point of information that's available to people um, when they're trying to make decisions to evacuate or actually evacuating, having access to um, the AM radio that delivers so much important local information, it's vital for our safety. Um, and, and so removing it is, it, it removes another layer of protection that people need, honestly. Um, I do want to make one comment about something that you were mentioning just a moment ago, yeah. Ken, related to WIAs, is that those do not require an app. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that's built into your phone, which is surprising to a lot of people when it actually starts going off, because it is quite disruptive, but it actually requires you to opt out instead of to opt in. So if if there's someone who's um, maybe they're older or not comfortable using all the high tech stuff on their phone, uh, if it comes just factory defaults, it's gonna it's gonna play the the siren when the EA, sure when the WIA comes out. Okay, <laughs> well that's good at least. Yeah, I got a silver alert on my phone the other day. My first <laughs> uh -huh. my first silver alert. Um, I guess uh, I was thinking of some apocryphal stories, actually, that came out of Maui. Um, but thanks for that clarification, Jeanette, that we as are, are always built in and you have to opt out. Um, there were some apocryphal stories from uh, the Maui wildfires that w at least one agency was posting its updates on Instagram. Mm -hmm. One local relief agency. That's something that that's really a pet peeve uh, of mine. I remember when... I can't remember which hurricane, but we've had a couple of hurricanes in the last, uh, say, five or ten years that are coming to New York, or or a couple of them like like Sandy actually hit. And I remember trying to get minute-to-minute -minute information about these storms, and sometimes the the local agency would say we're we're doing a press conference or we're doing a um, you know an information session about the storm. Log into Facebook Live. Yeah. And here it is. Right. And I've just like. Or follow our updates on Instagram. On Instagram. Yeah. Why? Why would they do? I understand if they're all covering all the other bases and they want to add that on. But to make that your primary channel, that you're forcing someone to sign up for the surveillance service, which I refuse to do. Now that's putting me and my family in danger unless I unless I want to sign up for that awful service. I agree. Jeanette, that's got to be on the list of bad practices, <laughs> right? Well, it's it's one of the channels that they use to reach people, um, partly due to the demographic that is on the different social media channels, but also because 
when social media emerged as a potential way to reach the public, it was one of the few channels that didn't require an intermediary. They could post information without having to have a web designer redesign content that got posted. They didn't have to rely on some news anchor to interview them. Um, they weren't on somebody else's schedule of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., the twice a day briefings and updates that people are so desperate to have. Instead, they can just put that information out there in this almost continuous stream that's it's instantaneous in many ways. And because of the way that that information is networked, it can go really far across networks of individuals that trust one another. Um, and we could get into a whole conversation about trust and social media, which is separate from this, right. but it is actually a best practice of putting information on those channels. However, it has to be just one of the practices. Like you said, not everyone's on social media. It does tend to run a much younger demographic and it misses a whole population, especially as our population is aging into older adults. Um, we can't forget the people who are most vulnerable. I, I agree with all that, Jeanette. I would just add one additional uh, risk factor, which is exemplified by what's happening in Canada, which is that if you want to put news out on Facebook, you have to have Mark Zuckerberg's permission to do so. And, yeah. and if there's any reason why he doesn't like you, your agency, or your country, um, he, can, he can turn you off. And that's, in fact, what has happened in Canada um, that Canada finally decided to, to, as I wish other countries would do, Canada um, did the right thing and started pushing back against um, Facebook, which was a, a parasite on the news business there, and said to Facebook, um, you're going to have to start paying for your use of Canadian news. And, and Facebook, led by Mark Zuckerberg, said, okay, no more news in Canada on Facebook. And, of course, we've been in a terrible wildfire season in Canada, and there are now uh, no longer, I think still, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a, an article in the conversation from, from not very long ago saying, this is from August 22nd, saying that there's no way to get wildfire news out on Facebook due to the news block. And so they are starting to shift their focus to radio because that's something that can disseminate the message to a, a, a broad group of people without having to ask a billionaire for permission. Mm -hmm. um, and well, I, also, I also think that just even requiring a password um, is, is a hurdle. And, and, you know, there just shouldn't be hurdles like that. But I agree with Jeanette that it's important to use every possible avenue that there is. Um, but I find, you know, forcing people to either use a password or remember a password. You know, can you imagine that you're trying to get some emergency information and it won't accept your password? Right. And you the know? and the tornado is bearing down on right. you and it says you have one more chance to get your password right uh. Uh, <laughs> or else we're not going to let you in. But I don't know this. I just I'll, I'll agree that uh, all avenues should be used. But if we have to prioritize I'd go with the free and open ones first that are going to be robust and resilient and free and don't require a password, all of those. Yeah, and, you know, it's an, as an example, a lot of large news organizations, whether it's the Washington Post or Fox, when there's a really important issue going on, they'll take down their paywall. 
they'll take down their paywall for the COVID information or for right. some kind of relief or disaster information. Yes. Somehow mm -hmm. Facebook forgot to do that for Canada. Yeah. Um, cannot trust that <laughs> They all that forgot to do that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it's been a terrible, terrible problem as the pop citizens came to really rely on some of those channels for breaking information and they are no longer reliable information that we need is not prioritized at the top of our feeds and it, they're just really filled with a lot of nonsense um that's not useful when your life is at in at risk um and well i was gonna it, say that yeah. every every disaster we've seen here firsthand has been such a complete s show um, and yes. <laughs> the agencies that were supposed to disseminate information or provide relief are usually nowhere in sight. Um, after 9-11 and even Hurricane Sandy, you didn't see the Red Cross or FEMA for five days. And everything that comes, everything useful that happens is usually people just pulling together and communities helping themselves. Um, I don't really know what emergency messages would have helped people in Maui because I there's an amazing firsthand account of a, of a Maui fire survivor uh, that was uh, done by the New York Times the daily podcast and uh, this guy who survived talked about calling the local police um, and they really had nothing to tell him uh, there were only two roads in and out of town one of them was on fire and the other one was shut down due to uh, electrical, fallen electrical lines. And the police, after he begged them, calling them four or five times, they told him, jump in the water. That was it. That's mm -hmm. all they could offer him was to jump in the water where it's like a raging, it wasn't a hurricane, but the, the water was crazy rough. Because of the winds were Be so high. Yeah, because of these winds that, that kicked up the fire in the first place. Right. So I honestly don't know what you could, Jeanette, like in a situation like that, you know, what What does an emergency manager do? What do they say? Yeah, what do like, they say? Because I, I, was, I was struck by the yeah. fact that finally the local police in Maui were, you know, they, they, they first told him four times, we don't, we can't come and get you, we're sorry. Uh, and then finally, all they could tell him was to jump in the water where you might drown. Ugh. You know, this, I think it kind of goes back to one of the conversations that, that we've had for 60 or 70 years within the disaster research community, which is that disasters are not, disasters, disasters are not natural. Disasters occur when human beings are in places that are risky and can't protect themselves from those events. Like think of, people who build their homes right along the shore and the shorelines are eroding <laughs> and they rebuild there again and again, that's not a natural disaster. That's human beings in places that are threatening. Right. And sometimes we're in places where the risks that we are exposed to are greater than our ability to survive. Um, and I, it, that's a, a really sad way of recognizing our own frailty as human beings, but it also recognizes that in some cases, 
there may not be something that we can be told to do um, because we are in a place where we are exposed to these threats that have increased and we haven't made it possible to evacuate effectively. Um, and our, our human limitations put us at, at grave danger. Well, at least we have you and your group, Jeanette, out there trying to improve the systems that we can use um, when we can be helpful to each other using these, these uh, wireless emergency alerts or EAS, whatever the systems that are available to us. Um, uh, we, we've got to wrap here in a second. How can people learn more about the work that you do, Jeanette? Oh, well, I've set up a website, um, and I call it The Warn Room. It's the W-A-R-N-R-O-O-M, <laughs> kind of a play on words from another person who's got a room like that. <laughs> um, uh, but in that, I, uh, I take what would potentially be considered complicated scientific research and make it usable and easy to understand and apply. So I'm basically doing science communication for emergency managers and for anyone else out there who wants to learn about how to communicate alerts and warnings more effectively. Yeah, well, um, I've, I've, I found a lot of your papers uh, really fascinating. I, I was reading the one where you talked about uh, weather forecasters and broadcasters describing hurricanes as monsters. <laughs> yeah, that was a great one. That was written by my former master's student, Robert Presley, who is a fantastic scholar. And he studied um, how uh, Hurricane Harvey was being communicated in Texas by uh, a group of broadcasters who stayed on the air for uh, through the night as their studio was uh, filling up with water. They stayed online. We're going to have to continue to broadcast. We're going to have to pick that one up for uh, episode two with you, Jeanette, because that's the beginning <laughs> of a great story that we don't have time for. And I just I... got a wea from the city of Hoboken. <laughs> flood watch. Okay. Fl avoid <laughs> flood. Avoid flood prone areas in Hoboken. That's like almost all of Hoboken. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jeanette Sutton, thanks so much for being with us on Tectonic. And I look forward to the next time you'll be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a, a fun conversation. I've learned a lot. Thanks, thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. And Bye. um, Ken, thanks for being my co-host. This yeah. was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was fun. Uh, I guess I'll just wrap, and then I want everyone to stay tuned for DJ Erwin Chusid, uh, who's going to be up in just about a minute and 10 seconds. He's letting his inner prog out. Erwin's always been a prog head. He's complicated, yeah. that Erwin. You've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. See you next time.
Count Dracula, your man, he's proud. Hope is found 